Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Hello, everybody. (laughs) I hope you all had a good Halloween uh, this past week. How many of you actually went trick-or-treating? Uh, show of hands, come on, be honest. I know, we're not, no, this isn't like kind of Baptist church where it's like, it's a devil's holiday, get out. No, if you went trick-or-treating, that's, that's okay. I can kind of see who's all hyped up on sugar. Go ahead, uh, Susie. Um, Colleen and I shamelessly uh, raided our little girl's pillowcase full of candy. Uh, Chase was Jojo the Clown. Uh, you know Jojo the Clown from Disney? Uh, and, and, and she was like, I was like, why do you want to be, a, a, you know, Jojo the Clown? And, uh, and she said, um, well, I want to be a clown when I grow up, Daddy. She said, I, I, want, I want people to laugh at me. And I was like, how sweet. She wants to go into ministry. That's a, it's a neat thing. Um, that's what I've always liked the best about Halloween. It always allowed me to envision what I wanted to be when I grew up. What do you want to be when you grow up? Remember that familiar question from your childhood years? If you're at all like me, the answer to that went through many evolutions. Uh, my my uh, earliest memories are, you know, I always wanted to be a cowboy when I was a little, you know, I'm going to shoot the bad guys. Everything became a gun. Then I morphed into a vampire. I wanted to suck your blood. I was like a vampire for like seven years running. Uh, then a magician. I was into like tricks and pranks, illusions and stuff. And then like a ninja. That was like the big thing. I went from Batman to ninja and, and thought it was all cool. I had like these fake, you know, stars and, and nunchucks. It was, it was all cool until I was about like, you know, 13. I actually remember this. I was wearing a ninja hood, a black ninja hood. You could only see through, you know, skulking around the neighborhood. And these seniors from the high school caught me and said, man, you're cool, Mr. Man in Black. And suddenly I thought, and one of them patted me on the head, and I felt this stuff running down. And I thought, Did they, you know, they egged me in my ninja outfit. And, uh, and I, like, took out, you know, my cardboard, you know, throwing stars. like, back off, man. <laughs> you know, when you were seven, what did you want to be when you grew up? How about when you were 17? Some of you are now 27 or 37. You still don't know. <laughs> Some of you know that we actually celebrated a birthday at Liquid last month. Uh, October 2005 actually marked the four-year anniversary of Liquid's first ever worship service. Yeah, it's actually been almost four years of ministry this fall. And when I, I look back on all that God's kind of done over 48 months, it's, it's exciting to see. Uh, the evolution of Liquid is kind of interesting. I put it up on a chart for you. Go ahead, Susie, throw that up there. If you look, just real quickly, the evolution, look in the, look in the bottom uh, row there, you'll see in September 1999, we were a Sunday school class in the church basement at 9.30 a.m. We had about 13 people, uh, hardcore, you know, committed, you know, Christian people who we were having a grand old time doing studies, and then we're kind of like, how come there's not 14 people or 15? What about our non-Christian friends and coworkers? And so we actually, with the church's permission in April of 2000, we kind of grew and went off-site to a local tavern. If you can imagine, we had church about a mile down the road in the Mount Bethel Inn. It's this beautiful tavern from like the 1800s. And it was neat. It was with one priority in mind. How can we make church more accessible to our friends, our coworkers, our fellow students at, at school who, who would never grace the doors of a traditional Baptist church, especially not one with an electric yellow sanctuary? And so at that point, we kind of grew, and at that point, we actually moved. We said, what's the next obstacle? And we moved back tonight in January of 2001. Um, the sanctuary was open, as it is for many churches on Sunday night, and we started a 6 o'clock service. And that kind of grew very quickly to, uh, to 125 folks in, in the summer of that year. 
But it was actually in September of 2001, it was right after 9-11, in fact, a few weeks after 9-11, that we started as a full-blown worship service, the fourth worship service of Millington Baptist Church. And again, we had a network of small groups and everything going, and that kind of grew. And um, that went wonderfully for a couple of years, and and we kind of, we spiked up to over 400 folks when we went to two services, because we were like, you know, what are all these little kids running around? And and we were like, we ought to do something for the kids, or get them break stuff. And so we did liquid kids. And uh, with that, we had some younger families, and, and that was wonderful. And, and in the past, uh, let's say, about two years, we kind of plateaued, went down to about 360 folks um, as of this fall. And so if you, if you look at that, it's an interesting thing, because in four years, there's actually been a lot going on that God's done. But four years, on paper, you know, some people ask if they came to liquid the first time, they say, what is liquid? Is it a church? Is it a ministry? Is it a cult? And we say, no, it's not a cult. It's a sale at Pottery Barn. That's what the candles are about. Um, No, we're not exactly a church. We're, on paper, a ministry of Millington Baptist Church. But we're not like other ministries. I mean, what kind of ministry has two weekly worship services, performs baptisms, celebrates communions, performs weddings? We've not had funerals yet. Uh, You know, takes an offering. Uh, You know, are we a church? Some people have come to see liquid as that. And there are many of us here, actually, tonight, including myself, who count Liquid as their primary spiritual community each week and share relationships with others here of mutual accountability, support, and just friendship in Christ. Some people count Liquid as their home church. Even our online address, www.liquidchurch.com, suggests that. And there are others, though, among us who have a home church, but you attend Liquid regularly and participate in any number of ways, and that's wonderful. We've always embraced the double dippers uh, among us. That's one of the nice things about being a night church. Uh, folks can feel free to attend a morning church. Maybe you serve at one, but you come to Liquid Church at night to be re- re-energized or refreshed or just meet new folks. That's great. And then we've always had a good number of tourists at Liquid. Uh, you know, folks, I can't think of a better way to say it, tourists. You know, folks who just kind of come by periodically, like, eh, check things out. You know, maybe a particular message topic interests them, or you just stop by to see friends from time to time. And you know what? You are always welcome here as well. We've got quite a collection of folks, really runs the gamut. As you can see, our attendance and participation has grown and fluctuated through the years from 15 in a classroom to 100 or so at an off-site outreach to 400 at two services, and, and, and that's great. We've always tried to keep an open hand and just say, hey, you know what, whoever the Lord brings, you know, let them come. But we also realize we have a huge back door. That is, as you know, at Liquid, it's pretty easy to kind of drift in and drift out anonymously. Kind of slip back into the night. You know, you slip in the back, kind of enjoy the worship, listen to the message, and and really enjoy the music, and just kind of slip out into the cool night air, into the parking lot, and just kind of peel out of here. You can actually come for a good long time to our church and still remain unknown. And while that may be good for some folks who feel more comfortable, I'm just checking things out. No pressure. That's great. After a while, though, if you're like any normal human being, it can actually become kind of depressing. No one notices if you don't come. And again, when you're new and you don't want the attention, it's like, great, no one even notices, just slip in. So you take a week off, but no one notices. And then you realize, does anyone really miss me here at all? There are definite strengths and weaknesses to the environment that we've created here at Liquid. Lots of folks have drawn, been drawn to the dynamic worship that Ian and the team lead each week, hopefully challenged 
in some way by, you know, relevant teaching. Maybe even had their interior world kind of turned upside down through one of our TCs or transformational committees. Awesome. This is kind of interesting. All told, we've had over 1,549 people come through these doors. At least that's how many newcomers signed up to be on our weekly mailing list. Most likely, you can add about 1,500 more who visited but never stopped by our newcomers' reception. Usually one and two newcomers do. So on the one hand, it's like, that's incredible. In four years, we've had over 3,000 people experience liquid. And more importantly, worship God together with us here in this sanctuary. On the other hand, that's a huge back door. 3,000 people have experienced liquid, but only a very small fraction have made the decision to commit their lives here, to serve and, and make it their spiritual home. And again, it's neither here nor there in a sense. I'm not attaching any value judgment to this. But from the very beginning, we believe that God was calling us to intentionally take a very fluid approach to ministry. That's kind of one of the na- meanings of the name liquid. <laughs> Just kind of removing from people's paths whatever obstacles were in their way of finding their way back to God. Unchurched, overchurched, Baptist, Catholic makes no difference. Liquid's door has always been open to come and see, sit and stay, or, or come and go. But this fall, our staff leadership team has actually really been sensing that now may be the time in our growth, in our very short evolution, as a community of Christ followers for four years, to begin being more intentional about what we're doing, what we're giving ourselves to. In fact, we're asking this question, what, what do we want to be when we grow up? You know that from the beginning, we've enjoyed, uh, you know, tremendous freedom from our church parents. Our senior pastor, Pendel, the rest of the senior leadership here at NBC have demonstrated unusual trust. Sometimes I think too much. That has allowed us to experiment at Liquid, to try new things. Always with the goal of fulfilling the original mission that God laid on our hearts when he first launched Liquid. And that was to engage a generation of postmodern adults, equip them to grow with God and others, and this... Unleash their gifts. And if you've been part of our journey, in ways big and small, we've done a lot of that. Certainly engaging folks through our Sunday night worship, teaching hopefully, equipping them in a a -a one-of-a-kind way through transformational communities, but hopefully igniting a passion for serving, not just the church but our community. So it's whether it's, you know, teaching the preschoolers at Liquid Kids or handing out a bottle of water to a thirsty stranger, serving and outreach has evolved as a core emphasis of our mission as God's people. But back to the basic question at hand. What do we want to be when we grow up as a church, okay, as a people, a community, (laughs) a collection of Christ followers in this state, in this area, in this time? What would God have us do with the people who are already here, with the people who are yet to come? Well, as we've looked to the future, to 2006 and beyond, we've been humbled to discover something interesting. (laughs) That is, as we consider what's next or what would God have us become in the year to come, we discovered that for the Christian church... The pathway to the future runs through the ancient past. From the beginning, you know our commitment at Liquid has always been to, you know, God's word. Anything we do that, like, seems progressive is usually nothing more than just kind of a fresh recovery of something that Jesus first introduced, that his disciples practiced and the church inherited. Maybe it's something that's been forgotten over the years, grown dusty through overfamiliarity or undervalued, part of the joy of being a church in the 21st century, is being able to recover some of those ancient rhythms of grace, of life with God, that our spiritual forefathers oriented their lives around. 
And as our staff and leadership have been spending this fall thinking about the future, we've been drawn to more and more this notion of the ancient past. As we think about what kind of church can be effective for the kingdom of God in this area of New Jersey in the 21st century. We actually didn't feel the need to consult cutting-edge books or models or futurists or modern consultants. Rather, we turned to the early church. To the original church, or ecclesia, that's Greek for church, that's found in the book of Acts. And that's what I'd like to look at tonight as we begin our conversation by becoming an ancient future church. Or the kind of worshiping community where folks can come to know God intimately, to know one another with some level of intimacy beyond just the surface, and where we share a common passion for penetrating the culture that God has planted in us. Because there are a lot of thirsty, lost people out there. Maybe you're one of them. We're glad you're here, especially for this moment in our evolution. I'd like us to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Would you do that now? Um, we have pew Bibles there. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold tonight. And I want to ground us in God's word in Acts, chapter 2. And this is the, actually the very last section of chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which gives us an inside look into the community life of the early church as it was just birthed after Jesus' ascension. <coughs> Acts 2, 42 through 47. Let me give you some background here. Acts was written by anyone? Paul, I heard Paul. No. Thank you. Good try. That's always a good guess, by the way. <laughs> always a good guess. Who wrote it? Paul? Uh, you're going to be right 90% of the time. Who? Luke. Thank you. Luke, who was a, for extra credit, the bonus points? Doctor. Oh, church people. As one of the original 12 disciples, Luke recorded the details in his gospel of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. You know that. Luke was a first-hand witness to all Jesus taught, everything Jesus said, everything he did. And the Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' ascension, which was his return to where? Heaven, right? It's interesting. Most folks think that as soon as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that he appeared before his followers and immediately like, went up into the clouds to heaven. Like he said, I'm alive. Goodbye. Not true. In fact, according to Luke, Jesus spent almost anyone... 40 days with his disciples between his resurrection and his ascension. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. And he, and he ends by commissioning them to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That is, take the good news about this life that I'm giving to you to the rest of the people here in Jerusalem, your local town, Judea, the broader country, Samaria, the, the culture you never want to be a part of, and the uttermost parts of the world. And so Jesus lays out this epic charge or global commissioning on these 12 apostles. In fact, the beginning of Acts tells us that there were about 120 followers of Christ at that point. It's not just 12 disciples, about 120 folks. And then he ascends into heaven. But before going, he tells them, these 120 folks, to wait in Jerusalem for a very special gift from his father. Anyone know what it was? Holy Spirit. That is, Jesus promised the world he would, send, he, he would send this young community of believers the gift of the Holy Spirit of God to dwell actually within them, to bond them together, and then to empower them for ministry. And that's what happened in the book of Acts. The name of the book of Acts literally refers to the acts, the actions or activities of the disciples of the early church once the Holy Spirit of God came to rest on them. Growing up, I always thought it was Acts, you know, A-X-E. 
was like, oh man, it's a violent book. I want to, I want to read it. It's Acts. The actions are activities of the early church. And, and this opening chapter of Acts chapter 2 records the details of Pentecost, right? Where the Spirit of God descends on the believers with this like violent wind. Whoosh, they're huddling in this upper room, praying during one of the Jewish feasts called Pentecost. And this howling wind blows through the place. And what appeared to be tongues of fire comes to rest on each of them. And suddenly they begin doing what? Speaking in tongues, right? Or that is actually talking in other languages. It's not jibber-jabber. They're actually talking in other dialects. And it was a miraculous attention-getter for the international crowd gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. All the nationalities represented recognized my own language is being spoken. But more than miraculous speaking drew people's attention. They saw the presence and power of the Holy Spirit up close. And the apostles began ministering in the power of the Spirit wherever they went. Peter. Last we saw Peter... He's cutting bait and kind of running on Jesus, denying him when it counts most. And he's the first apostle in Acts to stand up and preach the gospel to the masses of people who don't know Jesus. And it's to Jewish people. And he's like, you murder the Christ. It's like, whoa, this guy's kicking down the front door. And after the original sermon in Acts 2, we're told that about 3,000 new converts were made that day. Peter had no PowerPoint, no movie clips. But 3,000 people were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? we got to join this. Miracles, the power of God. And so this fledgling band of 12, of 120, instantly swells to over 3,000. And you have, quite literally, the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. That's where we pick up in verse 42. What's described here is this earliest recorded description of the ancient church. And what it offers us is an inside look of their body life together. What do they devote their time and energies to doing? How do they relate to God and one another? And, and kind of what I'm, just real candid, what I'm hoping this will do for us tonight as we consider what kind of church do we want to be as we grow up, is illuminate a path to the future, to our future, that runs through the ancient past. Read with me, Acts 2, 42. It's under the heading, The Fellowship of the Believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with Awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We'll stop right there at verse 47. And what we see here is actually pretty simple. (laughs) It's very foundational aspects of ministry that the early church was led to devote themselves to under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And the first is not surprisingly what? Teaching, right? Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, You consider that Jesus spent so much time teaching the crowds and his inner band of followers. It's not surprising that teaching had a central place in the early church. Just as the the master had done with them, the 12 apostles passed on to these new Jewish believers a full account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his promises. And this likely would have included much of what came to be recorded in the four Gospels. But, but in addition to that, they probably would have helped uh, give, give them a new perspective on the Old Testament, which they were schooled in, explaining how Jesus was the fulfillment of many prophecies. 
So grounding new believers in the apostles' teaching was a major priority for the early church. How, how did this new faith impact the way these new Christians were now supposed to live? All right, I believe in Jesus now. Is anything supposed to change? <laughs> How's it going to affect their lifestyles, their prayers, their private lives, their sexual behaviors, their, their pocketbooks, their marriages, their relationships with their employers or those beneath them? These are the practical real-time issues that the Apostle Paul frequently addressed in his letters to the young church. Since God had now entered human history in a real-time way, Jesus dying, raised to life, coming back, everything was now changed for this new community. And the apostles' teaching about Jesus in this new life of the kingdom was primary. It's kind of interesting. Teaching was so important to the, the life of the early church that when Paul gave Timothy a list of qualifications for elders, guess what the only ability-related qualification was mentioned? Teaching. All other qualifications of church leaders have to do with behavior, character, reputation of the person. Only one has to do with ability. Teaching. So the apostles' teaching, the pronouncement of the gospel or good news, explaining what the sacrifice of Jesus means in practical, relevant, living terms, was the first function of the early church. And, you know, that's what we've tried to do here at Liquid over the last four years. You know it's been our priority not to just teach that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but to teach what it means to proclaim him as Lord of our lives. So we invite him into areas of our personal lives in need of transformation, of healing, of growth. We address areas that are relevant, hopefully intersect (coughs) with where people are living in a real-time way on Sunday nights. I mean, if you take a brief survey, some of our topics over the past few years show the diversity of our teaching at Liquid. Last week we spoke about prayer, what conversation with God is like, is it meaningful to him? But the series right before that was on porn, (laughs) right? Our private thought life. That matters to God, too. Not just what we say to him, but what we think in private. This year, we've actually learned about relating to God as Abba, or enjoying the Father heart of God, as Jesus taught his followers to do. This summer, we highlighted Jesus' teaching in Luke 15 about things that are lost. That is our Lord's passion for people that Jesus misses most. Evangelism was part of our teaching this past year. But we don't just stay with comfortable theological boxes. Our teaching at Liquid typically dives into the muddy and often complex like hot-button issues that confront us today. And so we've touched on topics like divorce and remarriage, the gay debate. What do we do living in a world where, (coughs) excuse me, what you do in the privacy of your own bedroom is your business, right? Abortion, all sorts of different topics, the role of women in the church. Again, much like the early church, Teaching on germane issues of critical importance to believers has been a central focus of what we do, especially here on Sunday nights at Liquid. And that's been exciting for me to be a part of. Uh, Obviously, my main area of ministry is overseeing the teaching in our ministry. And while I know not everyone is, you know, everything we study or dig into may be the first thing in everyone's mind in a crowd this size, it's been neat to see how God uses our collective learning to impact the lives of others. In fact, beyond our local body here at Liquid, with the advent of, uh, as you guys know, I'm like kind of a techie guy, with the advent of podcasting and iTunes, you know, broadcasting the Liquid teaching over the internet, God's allowed our teaching ministry to have a more global kind of impact. It's kind of crazy. I was just saying this with Glenn the other day, but there's not a week that goes by that I don't get some sort of email or note from overseas, where apparently folks are picking up on what we're talking about here at Liquid uh, you know, via our, our website or iTunes. And in fact, the beginning of this fall, I got this note from a guy named uh, Matt in Bristol, um, outside of London. He's in the UK. Listen to what he wrote. He said, hey, dear Tim, 
Just wanted to say how much I enjoy uh, your messages and how much of an impact they're having in my life right now. I live in England, and although I was brought up in a Christian home in a church environment, over the past years I have slipped away and lost contact. I felt the people at my church had let me down and that it wasn't where I wanted to be anymore. For a long time I searched for a new church, but always had a feeling of something not being right. Then I found liquidchurch.com. I had my eyes and my heart opened, and in listening to your sermons, I feel like I'm slowly getting closer to God. I've recently started to go back to my church, and I'm taking my learnings from Sunday nights and applying them to healing old wounds in my church. My church is not perfect, but I now recognize it's where I need to be. I just needed a little help from God's guidance, which came through Liquid's podcasting. Thank you. When I next find myself over in your part of the world, I'll pop by to stay, say thanks in person. Matt, Bristol, UK. It's an amazing thing, folks, when, when you take... I mean, how cool is that? That we're part of connecting with people in another part of the world, across the pond, over the Atlantic, and, and, and God's using what we're doing here as a way to impact others. I got a note from a girl actually in Norway uh, who tunes in each week. She follows your posts on our church's blog. She's posted there herself. And she's just like, hey, I just want to thank you so I, that, for letting me be part of your virtual congregation. I was like, really? Didn't realize we had a virtual congregation. Okay, point. Point. The spread of the gospel, the teaching about God's love for us and the new life that Christ died to bring us is no longer localized. It's a global enterprise. Just as these early Jewish Christians discover only a few chapters later in Acts, what happens? As the good news of Jesus Christ spreads beyond the traditional religious bubble of Jews, to who? The Gentiles? Suddenly the teaching about the kingdom of God is spilling over into other cultures outside the church to foreign people, making an impact in the lives of people who previously had no knowledge of this Jesus or any interest in the church or the things of God. What the apostles, what we're learning here is the effective teaching about the gospel is supposed to have that kind of infectious nature, spilling over into the lives of people from all different backgrounds as they're attracted by the love and grace offered through faith in Jesus. Biblical teaching is primary. It's foundational. It's to be relevant and infectious, as Luke shows us here in Acts. But, but, big but, we love big buts at Liquid. What this passage also teaches us is that teaching in the life of Jesus' church, while critical, while important, while given a primary role, yay, teaching, is not enough by itself to sustain and grow a healthy community of believers. That's very humbling for me, especially as someone who teaches. As a child growing up, I attended church 24-7. I went Sunday morning, I went Sunday night, I went Wednesday night, I went to a crummy youth group. I am the classic over-churched. And the non-denominational Bible church I attended was very big on teaching. I've heard more sermons and messages than I can remember. In fact, I can count, though, on one hand, the few I do remember. When I think back to my childhood church, I honestly can't recall one message or one song or musical worship that really attracted me into the presence of God. When church was over, we never got in the car and said, wow, what incredible worship. How great was that song, man, that... That, well, that was a provocative sermon. I never thought of God in that way. The teaching and worship we had was just to not have that kind of resonance. But you know what we did say at my boyhood church after we left on Sunday night? And not Sunday night. Well, we left then too. Every time we got in that parking lot, we said, man, how was church? I don't know. But man, it was good to see Paul and Molly. It was good to see 
Lois and Dave. And that's something that I honestly don't know that folks at Liquid say very much when they leave our worship and teaching experience here at night. Again, you may come because you love the music. Ian and the worship team provide incredible leadership week in, week out. I know I would come to this church just for the worship experience alone, first rate. But when you leave, you might say, hey, that was a great worship experience. Love the music. Maybe the teaching was challenging or thoughtful enough that you got in the car and say, wow, that gives me something to think about. I don't know if I agree with everything Tim said, but I never thought of that area of my life through that lens. That's what I most typically hear from folks who regularly attend like each week. They're engaged by the worship or the teaching. Both, that's great. That was one of our primary goals, to earn a fresh hearing for the gospel, to show it's relevant to life. And folks who come, they've been bored or burned by the traditional church, often leave excited, rethinking what church could be. That's great, goal achieved. But what's not so great is that while our emphasis on teaching and worship on Sundays is primary, it can be dang hard to meaningfully connect with other folks here on Sunday night. People don't often leave saying, man, it was so good to see Matt and Liz as they did at my childhood church. There's a community bond that I think, quite honestly, is kind of weak in our church. In fact, unless you're lucky at Liquid or you're extremely intentional, very extroverted, you can easily come and sit through a service and then disappear through the back door anonymously without ever really connecting with one other person. At least in a substantive way. Maybe you get a bulletin, you get a hug from Glenn and say, I'm out of here. (laughs) It's a huge challenge and a vital area of growth for us as a community, at least if we're going to model the early church in terms of fellowship. Because if you look back at verse 42 you'll see the essential second ingredient that their church discovered was essential to healthy body life together. It says, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Koinonia. This is the word Luke uses for fellowship here. And it's a favorite word of Paul's in his letters to the early church communities. And the basic idea behind the Greek word koinonia, rendered fellowship, is sharing. It's also meant to denote intimacy, fellowship in general. And it was important to these early believers to spend a lot of time together. It wasn't an hour a week. It wasn't two hours a week. These hours would have been invested discussing the apostles' teaching, encouraging, challenging each other, most significantly, as we're told, just enjoying each other in the family bond that the Spirit created. So this koinonia, or community fellowship, among them also resulted in a very tangible manifestation of love for one another that found expression in sharing with the poorer members of this new community. Look at verses 44 and 45. It reads, All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. You quickly get the idea that this was not church business as usual for the early Christians. They didn't spend their weekends apart, hold up in their suburban home or condos, drive to all sorts of you know, separate events and activities, and then, oh, when it's Sunday at 10, 10 a.m. or 5 p.m., whatever, suddenly go, right, almost forgot. I wonder what the apostles are speaking on tonight. If Peter's there, I'll go. Good. If not, then I'll watch Desperate Housewives. No. <laughs> no. Something else was holding these guys together. All the believers were together and had everything in common. What's that mean? Because they all lived and had the same amount of money. This is hard, folks. Because the idea of biblical community flies in the face of our Western notions of, you know, rugged individualism that informs so many of our modern lives. 
these folks oriented their lives around one another. And it wasn't that they all came from the same background. In fact, the members of the early church, especially after Pentecost, was remarkably diverse. You had folks of different education levels, political philosophies, financial strata, all mixing together, slaves, free people. Yet the account Luke gives us here in Acts is that they shared such a level of fellowship and intimacy in the Lord that they had everything in common. In fact, their sense of spiritual unity was so great that at least in the areas of economic inequality, the Holy Spirit motivated the rich ones to sell their possessions and goods in order to meet the basic needs of the poor members of the group. How's that for bearing one another's burdens? Now, this concept of koinonia, of fellowship, of, of sharing life alongside one another, is, is it's something else. It's almost wholly alien to what we Westerners living in North America, I mean in New Jersey of all places, experience in the 21st century. And as I've, I've said, uh, from, far from sharing one another's financial burdens, it's a challenge just to get to know others here at Liquid on Sunday nights, especially for new folks. It's dark. Sometimes it's, it's crowded and you can easily slip in and out, unnoticed, disconnected, and tragically feeling uncared for, unloved. You've got to be really highly aggressive to, to, to make a dent here. And it's not just new folks. <laughs> Confession. Often on Sunday nights, I know I seem extroverted, I find myself often feeling intimidated and disconnected at times <laughs> for many of you. And, it, and that, that's, I'm here every week. Folks like assume I know everyone. Hardly. <laughs> it's frustrating that I don't know many of your names. I know how hurtful that could be. And I'm the kind of pastor that actually likes people. There are a lot of pastors who don't like people. I like people. <laughs> there are. It's crazy. But my experience often is no different than yours. Sometimes it's too dark and we're so busy getting the PowerPoint ready, screwing around, printing bones. It's hard to pause and have the time to truly connect with each other in a meaningful way. It's one of the primary regrets and frustrations I have as your pastor with two services. It's hard to have our lives intertwined, at least in the spirit in which the early church apparently did. And there's many excuses that we, you, know, you could be tempted to offer that explain, you know, it, well, we have a transient population here at Liquid. I'm personally bad with names. Or maybe like, like me, you have a young family, and it's all you can do just to get your kids over to the educational building, be here for worship, rush over, pack them in the car before they melt down. I know what it's like. <laughs> These are the realities of church life as we know it. In fact, I was thinking about this passage in Acts, and I'm just like, I'm like what, are they, what are they doing here? How? I'm like, did they even do children's church? Because it says, you know, they broke bread in their homes. I'm like, where, were the kids also there breaking things? What, you can't, how do you, how do you make, obviously the text doesn't say, but what it does give us is a rare picture, a vision of what truly meaningful, connected body life could be between believers under Christ. Could you imagine if we had that kind of body life together here at Liquid, that our congregation was pervaded by a sense of spiritual unity so intense that even folks far away or from diverse backgrounds felt connected, like their lives were connected together, tethered to some larger vision of the kingdom of God that transcended their race, what they did for a living, who they were sitting with. Whoa! Now that would be something to strive for in the new year, wouldn't it? Koinonia. What would it cost us to try to cultivate that? To actively fight against the disconnectedness and anonymity that's pervasive in the Western church culture. Make no doubt it would be a major challenge. This is not about learning to be friendlier. 
Made friendlier church. It's far deeper than an attitude adjustment, if we're to take Luke at his word. That is, Luke points out two particular practices that evidently bound these early Christians together in relationships of radical intimacy and fellowship. It says, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Communion. First thing, the only things that we're told, these believers rallied around, one, was the Lord's Supper, the sharing of communion together. That's what the phrase breaking of bread actually refers to. It actually, actually refers to two things. The sharing of ordinary meals together. Church scholars agree that the early Christians, like many Christians, loved to eat. It's like, good, we're still working on that one. We got that one in, under our cuff. Early Christian, Christians commonly shared meals together, which furthered their fellowship. But it also refers to remembering the death of Jesus, their Messiah, by celebrating what came to be known as the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, Right? The ritualistic and symbolic breaking of bread, the body of Christ. The drinking of the cup, which Jesus said to his disciples, this symbolizes my blood shed for the forgiveness of all of your sins. It binds you together. You have new blood in you. So eating together, both common meals as well as the Lord's Supper, was a big piece of the shared life of the early Christians. It bonded them. That's actually what communion means when you think about it. What is communion? Community brought into union. Together they remembered Jesus' sacrifice and the cost. Together they shared in the common meal of his body, the, blood, the, the bread passing it along, the blood, the cup, celebrating this reality of our shared life in Christ that joins together a group of diverse people in an intimate way. I actually have a group of friends who do this regularly uh, on a biweekly basis on Saturday mornings. And when I've joined them, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Some churches, you know, do communion monthly. We do it like every, you know couple months here at Liquid, but there's something very special about celebrating Christ's sacrifice with a small band of believers, with brothers, with sisters. And that's apparently what these Christians did. Verse 46 actually says that their communion took place outside the established church walls, which was a Jewish temple at the time. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But at this stage of the early church, the Lord's Supper was held in conjunction with a common meal in the believers' homes throughout the city. And there's a reason for this. It wasn't just like, oh, we have a nicer living room. We have a big screen TV. Come over to our place. That's not it. See, the Jewish believers did not actually separate at first from the rest of the Jewish community. They still went to the temple every day. They went to the synagogues for worship and instruction in the scriptures. They kept doing it. But their belief in Jesus increasingly created friction with Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So believing Jews were forced to meet in private homes for communion, prayer, and teaching about Christ. By the end of the first century, many of these Jewish believers were actually excommunicated from their synagogues. And so we learn that some of the wealthier members of the early church actually opened up their private residences in the city of Jerusalem for the Christians to gather. Again, this is foreign to our Western notions of church. Think about when I say church. What do you mean? Ready? What do you think in your mind? What's instantly in your mind? Church. What do you see? White building, steeple. We say church, and Westerners think physical facility. Church is a building, right? Reality is, private homes were the principal meeting places of early Christians for the first three centuries of Jesus' church existence. The idea of the church being a building where people gather you know, once a week for programs and a service, that's an entirely modern phenomenon that arose only a few hundred years ago. And so the early Christians, if they were like transported to our current culture of churchianity, they'd be like shocked by the emphasis on buildings and grounds and programs and budgets. Even professional clergy, they're like, you, what? 
you get paid, Tim, for this? You'd be like, what? Nobody gets paid. No. The early fellowship of Christians was much more intimate, much more organic. The sharing of lives, of meals, of opening of homes, the simple sharing of day-to-day life together in Christ, often around meals and communion. And all of that fostered an intimacy, a corporate fellowship. As my friend Ed Williams says, they were just friends enjoying friendship with God. Small groups of believers enjoying the Lord together. No big service, no big band, no PowerPoint, no flashy show. And there's something to that. Gathering in smaller groups for koinonia, for prayer and worship, generates something else that's very hard to come by in our society. Sincerity of heart. Authenticity between two people. It's hard in a larger, larger, you know, larger gathering of the hundreds or thousands. Notice the text indicates, says, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In his commentary on Acts, Dr. Ajith Fernando writes, the believers also had sincere hearts when they met. And it signifies an open-hearted attitude where there's no pretense and performance in the way the believers behaved. The joy came from the heart because people were not trying to impress anyone. They developed an attitude toward each other that enabled them to truly enjoy each other. How many times have you gotten the car after liquid and got home and said, man, oh man, did I enjoy Chris Kirkpatrick tonight? You ever say that? First off, it would be weird, okay. <laughs> but how many times you say that because you, you've, you've had a chance to like knit souls together with someone else who shares the blood of Jesus in their lives, the spirit of God in their hearts, and man, it's like irrelevant what's, what's going on up, up there on the altar. That happened a lot for you? What if that became one of our goals for the year to come? Not necessarily to grow in size or numbers, but actually in depth of fellowship. Not that we have more people visit, but that those who are here learn to truly enjoy one another and share life together. It's a powerful thing. I feel like I got a taste of it actually this this past Tuesday night. I stopped by um, TC Training on Tuesday night just to check in and and support Drew Newkirk, who's doing a wonderful job leading our, our small group training. And it was just so good to fellowship with other friends here outside of Sunday nights, outside of teaching and worship. The training's smaller, much more casual and intimate than a larger service like this. And I just had a chance to connect with other friends. And those of you who I might only get to see in passing on Sunday nights, I think of Dawn, right? Dawn, we talk sometimes during the week over email. Um, Dawn has something going on. All right, you know, tough luck. You have something, she has something going on with her foot. It's really frustrating. Yeah, there it is. You will, you know, there it is. I had only known it in theory. She's like, please pray for my foot. Pastor Tim, this is like the fourth surgery. And, you know, I always write an email back to you. Here's a prayer. I'm praying for you over email. That's great. But you know what happened on Tuesday night? I was like, Dawn, how's your foot? And she's like, I'll show you. She unzips her shoe. She takes it off. And I'm like, oh, you know, you don't have to do that. And she's like, no, no, you got to see this. And she takes off her sock. She takes off her sock and go look at it, Pastor Tim. And I was like, oh, koinonia. Whoa, hey. <laughs> but it was awesome. Because you know what? I got to see her life. The burden that she's bearing, and not just pray in some sort of abstract way, but know my sister's pain and what she's struggling with, and bear that with her. It, it, it's, it's, that's an example of koinonia, of close relationship, intimate fellowship, and it got me thinking about our church. You know, how would, um, how would we, how could we be intentional about nurturing more of that kind of care and connectedness? <laughs> Communion wasn't the only thing that brought these people together, right? Verse 42 mentions what? Second part of their community life together, what? Prayer. 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Some people say, nothing is more intimate than praying with someone. It always makes me nervous when a friend of mine is dating somebody, and I say, and says, so what are you guys doing? How's it going? They're like, oh, you know what? We're not fooling around or anything. We're just praying together. I'm like, no, don't do it. <laughs> oh, there's nothing that knits hearts and is going to make you want to, like, disrobe more. Sometimes pray. You know. This was not just an occasional prayer meeting or an add-on. It was a central activity of the lives of these believers. David Cavanian and the team who leads our prayer night have really staked us to a wonderful start in that regard. And I want to encourage you to, to, to check this out on Friday night if you do have a chance. But what if we decided to make a common prayer life together central to our purposes here as a church body at Liquid? How, how would we have to change what we do here to make that a priority? So it's not just Glenn kind of bookending with prayer, Tim prays sometimes, but actually we converse with God together. What would we, would we change what we do on Sunday nights? What if just praying together was considered as legitimate and the essential a part of worship as singing songs? Whoa, it's radical stuff. But it's worth it. Those of you who know the power of prayer can attest. The modern church sometimes marginalizes prayer. That's the church I grew up in. It was kind of like this activity that like the super spiritual, you know, can really do. You know, they're prayer warriors. <laughs> She's a prayer warrior, not me. You know, I, there was no such labeling in the early church. <laughs> Evidently, they spent t- significant time together praising God, as verse 47 says, conversing with Jesus, praying for the needs of one another in their community. And that act of intimacy has a powerful effect, folks. At all levels from Luke's perspective, The spiritual unity of these early believers went beyond familiarity. Guess what? They became a family. From familiarity with one another, oh, they go to my church, to family. This is my brother, my sister in Christ. It was so sincere, so genuine, so deep that it moved their pocketbooks. (laughs) They sold their possessions. They gave to anyone who has a need. That's mark of a family. You don't do that with strangers. Only those you have the deepest level of connectedness with. So think about this. In addition to teaching and worship, the early church had a primary focus on koinonia, deep, intimate fellowship, connection with one another that transcends the diverse backgrounds. It doesn't even matter where you come from. We celebrate the the crucified and risen Christ together. We pray for one another. We carry each other's burdens. And it's that final piece of the equation in the ancient, ancient church that I believe holds the most potential for our truly becoming a transformational kind of congregation led by the Spirit to touch the lives of non-believers. I want you to turn over two chapters to Acts 4, verse 32 through 35. Acts 4, 32. In this description, Luke expands on this charity, this practice of sacrificial sharing and giving, what it looked like in the life of the early Christians. Take a look at this. It says the believers share their possessions. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those those who owned lands or houses sold them, They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Folks, this is what I call demonstrable generosity. 
And it was one of the primary hallmarks of the common life of the early church. They were able to share possessions and property. Why? As a result of the unity that the Holy Spirit worked in and through their lives together. Now, I need to stop here because lest you get some like distorted or romanticized version of what Luke is describing here, you need to know. The early church was not like some rogue group of commies. Okay? I know like the, you know, the, the liberal socialists among us are like, see, there it is. Che Guevara was right. Everyone is equals. Sell all you have. Common property, the way to go. Communism, there it is, right? What Luke describes here is different than communism in several important ways. First, notice that the sharing was voluntary. It's not forced. It didn't involve all private property, but only as much as was, was needed. It says, from time to time, those who, time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. You see what's going on there? Generosity became an overflow of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their shared life together. A common generosity welled up inside of them. Their commitment to Jesus, the work of the Spirit in their lives, produced in them a completely new attitude about their property, their cars, their stuff. All right, not their cars. Their stuff, your cars. (laughs) No longer were they uh, motivated to amass wealth for themselves, bigger, better, faster, more. But they now viewed what they had, actually what I have is just a resource for the cause of Christ and the care of the rest of his people. So as needs among them surfaced, get this, individual Christians sold portions of their personal property and gave to meet those needs. They actually eliminated poverty within their community. Verse 34 reports, there were no needy persons among them. Incredible. I want you to understand, this was not a mandate by the apostles, and that also makes it distinctive. This kind of radical sharing was not a membership requirement in order to be part of the church, so we don't have here a case of enforced sharing or join the church and sell everything and give it to, you know, Glenn. (laughs) The important point is that the koinonia fellowship touched the pocketbook too. The characteristic of demonstrable generosity had a profound effect, not just on them, and this is interesting, but on the watching culture around them. If you go back to Acts 2, verse 47, Luke writes, he tells us the early Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words... The kind of common life they shared together had a huge impact on the non-believing world around them. Their generosity, their promiscuity and giving of their treasure actually became the preeminent evangelistic tool of their church. So let's wed these three things we've learned together. For the early church, as they focused upward, teaching and worship, we're learning about God, we're worshiping God, as they focused Inward, koinonia, relationships with one another, intimacy, shared communion, body life. It had an impact where? Outward. Evangelism. Their common life of spiritual unity and generosity was so intense. Tangible acts of love and kindness. It was used by God's spirit as an evangelistic tool. And this is just as Jesus intended it to be, folks. In many ways, what's being described here by Luke is simply the realization of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 23. Remember we looked at that last week? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus spent extensive time in prayer. And what's the final request that he makes of his father? On behalf of all his disciples and all those who would follow and believe in the future, John 17, 23. May they be one as we are one, Father. I in them and you in me. 
May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, Jesus envisioned or dreamed of a moment in which his church, the people of God, would be marked by such unity, such demonstrable generosity, that the non-believing, watching culture around them would have no choice but to sit up and take notice and simply say, man, I don't know what these people are on, but they're on something. (laughs) Because they know how to love. I don't agree with everything they do, but that church, if they left this community, man, we would be at a loss. It would be a shame if Millington ever shut down. If Liquid moved out of this town, we would be broken, heartbroken. Francis Schaeffer, you know, the Christian apologist who understands how essential action is to evangelism. He wrote in his manifesto, The Mark of a Christian, love is the final apologetic. Where preaching or words hit the ceiling and have a limit, actions transcend words, especially in a skeptical or cynical culture that thinks it knows Christianity and has thrown it out. Demonstrated generosity acts of kindness and love and compassion, these are the things that make the gospel real to a cynical culture alien to the new news of Jesus Christ. As the song goes, right? They will know we are Christians by our talk. By our talk. They will know we're Christians by Tim's sermons. No. <laughs> by what? Loud. Love. love. By our willingness to sacrifice what's most precious to us. And for these early Christians, that was their monetary treasure. But for us, it may include our time, our reputations, which in some ways is more prized than money in Western culture. And you know, if you've been with us this past year, we've tasted the power of demonstrated acts of love at Liquid, primarily at our gay pride outreach this past spring, right? We witnessed the power of something so simple So elemental, offered without malice, without agenda, simply in love. The power of a cool cup of water offered in Jesus' name. Not what the homosexual community typically expects from evangelicals, let alone a Baptist church. And it went a long way to shattering stereotypes, didn't it? And just kind of seeding the gospel in a community that many people shun in a very tangible, simple way. I know it affected our lives probably more radically so in the lives of those who we served. The, the coverage that that, remember, received in the newspapers, you know what, that, that's sim- it's almost embarrassing. It's like embarrassing that like, people would make a big deal out of that. It was crazy. When the New York Times wrote an article on that, it was like, we gave out water. <laughs> oh, I'll make sure you understand this. We gave water out for free. It's embarrassing. It also speaks to the poverty of the Christian church in the area of demonstrated generosity to the watching world, doesn't it? So here's my closing question to you. A challenge to us as a community. What if this kind of outreach wasn't just a special project we did every six months? What if it actually became more of a lifestyle that we participated in together on a regular basis? Remember, we called off church, one of the best things we've ever done. We called off Sunday church. We said, the service this week is actually serving, not us, others. What if this kind of practical hands-on acts of demonstrable generosity became part of the monthly rhythms of our body life here at Liquid? What, what would that entail? 
What would it look like? What if charity and sacrificial serving were not in the periphery of our identity as God's people? What if it wasn't something only people with a heart for outreach? That's Alex Purnell. No. It became central to our shared life here at Liquid. How would you do that? Make room for it. So it was so natural and organic part of our life together. Folks, it's these questions that are informing us as we consider the question with which we started. What do we want to be when we grow up? The pathway to our future runs through the ancient past. If we really believe that the three areas of ministry emphasized by the early church, teaching and worship, intimate fellowship among believers, and evangelistic kindness towards those outside church walls, was ordained by the Holy Spirit, would we actually follow suit and discover our future together as a church body and a return to our ancient roots? Would we be willing to make the kind of changes, the sacrifices here at Liquid that might be required to do it, to rethink the whole thing? And I want you to pause before you answer because there's great comfort in being anonymous. Kind of just passively, you know, watching the show and simply sticking with your close circle of friends or acquaintances or whoever you minister with. Are you willing to rethink the whole thing? What church is really about? I know I am, and I hope that you are too. Our leaders are actually just starting discussions of some of these potential changes in 2006 and in the weeks to come. But as a staff, we felt it was important to bring all of Liquid, both family and friends, visitors, into the loop from the beginning. And we do that by going back to our roots, the ancient early church. Next week, we'll start getting into some specifics. Possible ways we might realize true biblical community together in the year to come. I hope you'll be here for part two of the ancient future church as we discuss together what kind of a kingdom community could be birthed here in a real-time way in New Jersey that makes a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for our time, and thank you that we are not orphans. You haven't left us alone having to dream up blueprints or maps of our own, but you've given us your compass in the Holy Spirit who directs our way. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the early church, our spiritual forefathers and mothers who sacrificed much, Lord Jesus, much more than we will probably ever know in this life, to incarnate the kingdom of God among a pagan culture. Lord, I want to thank you for their courage. I want to thank you that it was actually all done through your power and strength. We're in awe of you, Father. We are imperfect people personally. We have many sins. Corporately, Lord, we're a failure too. We have many failures and flaws and gaps. And we don't do that to get down on ourselves, Father. But we do it out of humility because we want to be more for you. We want to be what you dreamed of, Jesus, in your prayer. That the world may know that you've loved them, Jesus, because of what they see in us. So, plant seeds among us tonight. Do it in ways big and small. Rattle our cages. Start with mine. We're willing to rethink everything we know, Lord, if it means being more faithful to you or of more use. So use us. We are tools at your disposal. Keep us sharp. Set our sail for the year to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.